Hello and welcome to Le Monde Diplomatique's podcast for May 2011. My name is George Miller, and each month I bring you an in-depth interview with one of our contributors. I'm very pleased to say that my guest this month is journalist and Middle East specialist Patrick Seal. Patrick has been writing about the region for several decades now, and he has a particular expertise in Syrian politics. And Syria's current unrest is the subject of his article in this month's edition of the paper. I began our interview by asking him about the origins of his interest in the country. It's a very long-standing interest. My parents were missionaries in Syria and Lebanon, and so I spent some years of my childhood there. But then, uh, in my 30s, having spent some years with Reuters Mm. as a financial journalist, I decided to go back to Oxford and recharge my intellectual batteries, and I went back to St. Anthony's. I went to St. Anthony's, and um, Albert Hurani, who was a great sort of Middle East guru then, ah, yes. head, head, head of the new Middle East Center at St. Anthony's, said to me, why did you write about something we know, Syria? And so that was the beginning of it. And that's, that's when I wrote my, my first book, The Struggle for Syria. And then subsequently you published a biography of the, the present president, Assad's oh. father, didn't you? Yes, uh, of, of the father of the president, the yes. present president, of Hafiz Assad. I published that in 1988-89. I unfortunately couldn't include the last decade of his life. He died in 2000. But it was really about uh, uh, him and and, uh, his background and the creation of modern Syria, really, which which, which he was the main main architect. Now, turning to the the current travails of Syria, perhaps you could just recapitulate how the, the present unrest began. What was it that sparked it? Well, it began, or appears to have begun, when a a small number of children, 12-year-olds and that sort of thing, scrawled some graffiti, some slogans on a wall in Dara, which is a city in southern Syria on the border with Jordan. Now, it's a city which has suffered from drought in the last four years, it's been rather difficult in Syria, it's an agricultural city. It's also a city which has suffered in a way from being right on the border with Jordan, because the two countries, Syria and Jordan, were not in very good terms. And so it was rather difficult, for example, to give just one example, to buy and sell property or land in Dara without getting a permit from the security authorities, because it was a security zone. And so uh, these children were arrested. Uh, Their parents were outraged, went into the streets, and that's how the the disturbances began. Of course, they must have been influenced by the so-called Syrian Spring, I mean the so-called Arab Spring, Mm. the protests in Tunisia, Egypt, and elsewhere. And the reaction of the authorities, the Syrian authorities, has been pretty heavy-handed from the start, hasn't it? They have. They made the huge mistake, in my view, of resorting to live fire. Because when you start killing people, uh, then you get funerals and uh, tremendous uh, emotional outpourings and... and, uh, the thirst for revenge and rage generally. And so the, the disturbances spread very quickly to other cities, um, mainly places like Homs and Banyas and Latakia. Now, surprisingly enough, um, the capital, Damascus, and the northern capital of Aleppo uh, have largely been spared from major demonstrations. I think another interesting point Unlike Egypt, you see, in countries like Egypt, you can get a million or two million people in the streets. You don't get this crowd effect Mm. in other Arab capitals. 
Certainly in Syria, the demonstrations are much, much smaller. You get perhaps a few thousand people at a time, and therefore much easier for the authorities to control them. Now, how reliable, Patrick, is the information that we get out of Syria? I mean, there's clearly a difficulty in in actually finding out what is what is going on. Where, where do you look to in order to, to try to get a, a realistic picture of the situation? Well, the problem, that is, the, the, you put your finger on a major problem. There hasn't really been reliable information. There are extremists on both sides, on the government side and on the side of the opposition. And each is putting out their story. Now, it's very hard to, to check the reliability of these stories and whether or not they're telling the truth. Now, the interesting thing, there are two points I think which one should stress. One is that so long as the army and security forces remain loyal to the regime, it will be very difficult for the opposition to topple it. In Egypt and elsewhere, the, the army was neutral. And that's what allowed the protesters to win. Uh, a second important point, I think, about Syria is that the silent majority appears to be uncommitted to either side. And the, the silent majority seems to want a political solution. They've seen what happened in Lebanon next door with its long civil war. They've seen what happened next door in Iraq. Indeed, Syria had to welcome over a million Iraqi refugees. And they don't want that. They want security and stability, even if the price to pay is a lack of political freedoms. This, is, this has been the general position of the silent majority. Now, of course, things have somewhat changed. The heavy-handed, as you say, reaction of the authorities has tended to push people into the opposition. But the opposition is of many different sorts. Yes, I was wondering how clearly articulated the demands of the opposition were, or, or, or how, how plural and multifarious, on the other hand, they were. I think one distinction one has to make is between what one could call the old guard opposition. There are a number of very well-known figures who've been in and out of jail in recent years, people like Arif Dalila, Michel Kilo, uh, Louis Hossein, uh, Riyadh Safe, people like that. Now, that is one group, and they've been campaigning very bravely for greater political freedoms. However, now we have this phenomenon of street protests, and it's not at all clear who is leading the street. Then then you get uh, the exiled opposition, which is much more virulent mm. in Lebanon, mm. in London, in Paris, and elsewhere. They are openly calling for the overthrow of the regime. Then you get some, obviously, some agents provocateurs who are armed. There have been quite a few casualties in the army and in the security services. The regime says there have been nearly 100 military casualties. This may be an exaggeration, but certainly some military people have been shot and killed. Then you get the rather sullen Islamist opposition. You see Hafez Assad encouraged a mosque building after the Hama affair in 82, he tried to conciliate moderate Islam, but I think around these many, many mosques which have been built has grown up a sort of sullen Islamist opposition. Now, um, what the old guard opponents are now saying, they are tempted by the idea of a national dialogue. I think many people think that if there isn't some sort of national dialogue, the situation could deteriorate and could descend into a sort of civil war with armed gangs in the streets and a further deterioration of the economy and more hardship for the population. 
this is not what most people want. What these old guard politicians are saying is uh, they are not able to represent the street. And they are saying to the regime, they've held some meetings with representatives of the regime, they are saying, you must allow the street to name its own representatives if you want a dialogue, a national dialogue. You must also create the right environment for a dialogue by stopping the killings, by releasing political prisoners, and so forth. And the government, if it, is, if it really wants a serious dialogue, must produce an agenda for change. So this is really where the situation seems to be today. Mm. There are moves afoot for a national dialogue, but, of course, those who want to topple the regime are not keen on that at all. How easy or difficult do you think President Assad is to read in terms of what his likely strategy is going to be from from here? Well, uh, he's not easy to read uh, because he's only spoken twice in this whole crisis since mid-March, mid mm. once to Parliament and once to his new cabinet. He hasn't really addressed the nation. So one wonders really whether he's fully in control and whether he's not really in the hands of his own extremists. However, he has been meeting with delegations from various cities and the, the, the story that's coming out of the regime now is that they are in favor of a national dialogue. And, and he, is, he is said to have, uh, have forbidden the use of live fire. On the other hand, uh, casualties continue. His uh, strategy, his tactic, it seems to me, in recent days, has been to kill fewer people, but to arrest more. Mm. Because I think they realize that killing people arouses uh, great hostility in the international community, causes Syria to face the possibility of serious sanctions and isolation. And so they are, they are certainly reducing the killing. The killing has, much, has, has, has been greatly reduced, I would say, in the last week or two, compared to the early days. But the arrests have continued in large-scale arrests for that. You mentioned earlier the opposition, which was based overseas, especially in, in London. And in the article, you talk about the backing that opposition has had from, from the State Department. And what, what sort of level of involvement has there been in recent years? Well, the figures which we've seen from WikiLeaks, quoting uh, American diplomatic documents coming out of Damascus, is that the State Department uh, paid some $12 million between 2005 and 2010, to a network of Syrian opponents, opponents of the Syrian regime in, in London. Uh, no doubt other sums were paid to opponents in other countries. They, they, they exist, uh, as you know, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Saudi Arabia, in, in the United States. There is a rather large exiled Syrian community, mm. which is very hostile to the regime for all sorts of reasons, for, for, for reasons of uh, for sectarian reasons, for uh, perhaps for commercial reasons, for serious political reasons, wanting more freedom and so forth. Uh, now, there are a lot of reforms the regime could offer, it seems to me, short of, of full democracy on the Western model. The president has said he will end the state of emergency. Well, that hasn't yet been implemented, clearly. He, he could curb the powers of, of his security services. He could uh, stop torture in their prisons. He could create an independent judiciary. He could give greater freedom to the press, more cultural freedoms. 
And of course, what people really would like is the end of the one-party state, mm. the, the, the Ba'ath-dominated state, they would like greater pluralism. And there is talk now of, the, of this regime issuing in the next couple of weeks a new um, electoral law which may allow for greater pluralism. The, the, the regime could put a curb on corruption. It could give great, greater opportunities to small businessmen who resent the, the bigwigs looking mm. to get all the big business. They could put more resources into tackling youth unemployment, which is the great bane of mm. all these Arab societies. Mm. They could have greater accountability, for example, particularly regarding in Syria, the oil income. So these are all things the government could do, which I think would help calm things down, short of actually introducing a one-man, one-vote Western-type democracy, mm. which they are most reluctant to do for good reasons, because they would probably be voted out and may even face some harsh retribution. Of course, with those measures you've you've just sketched out, there is a, a clear danger of it being too little and too late, isn't there? Well, the, there are some in the regime who say, let's just crush the opposition. We can mm. get away with it. There's not, nothing anybody can do. Nobody would dare intervene in Syria. There are others, and I think the president is among them, who says, no, we must reform. Uh, I've been trying to, you would say, I've been trying to modernize Syria. I want to reform it. I would like to take the lead of a reform movement and really improve matters. There's clearly a big debate going on inside the regime. Of course, the hardliners say, well, let's crush the dissent first, and mm. then you can play around with your reforms. <laughs> Whereas, uh, of course, wiser people are saying, look, you've got to reform first. But as I say, the present tendency is to call for a national dialogue. But to, for that to be successful, the right environment has to be created. There are some rumors that the uh, Turks have offered to provide a forum for a dialogue outside the country. The Syrians are proud people. They don't like foreign intervention in their affairs. But Turkey is a special case. The relationship with Turkey has been very good in recent years. Many Syrians don't want that relationship to deteriorate, as it has done somewhat in recent days. Patrick, perhaps I can ask you finally, it, it must be two or three weeks since your article went to press, and I wondered, in that intervening time, do you, do you feel more or, or less optimistic about uh, a peaceful solution to, to Syria's problems than you did then? Well, there has to be a political solution, in my view. The alternative is hardly... Well, hardly can, can bear contemplating, which would be really sectarian warfare. So uh, now the question is, are either side ready for a genuine dialogue? I mean, on the government side, there are obviously some people who, who feel it's too early. On the opposition side, there are some people who don't want a dialogue at all. They think that they want greater momentum and the overthrow of the regime. I personally think that that is unrealistic so long as the army and security forces remain loyal. If they were to split, then you'd get a completely different situation. But for the moment, it seems it would be extremely difficult for the opposition to defeat a very well-entrenched and strongly structured security state. Patrick Seal. You can read his article, Is This the End of the Assad Dynasty?, in the May issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. You may also be interested in his latest book, The Struggle for Arab Independence, Riyadh al-Sol and the Makers of the Modern Middle East, which was published by Cambridge University Press last year. 
It's a history of the region in the first half of the 20th century, from late Ottoman times to the 1950s, told around the life of the leading pan-Arab statesman of the time. Do also visit Le Monde Diplomatique's website at mondediplo.com, where subscribers can read the current issue of the paper and access a complete archive, as well as exploring the Diplomatic Channels section, which offers articles, blogs, maps, images, and a podcast archive. I hope you'll join me again next month for another in-depth interview with one of our contributors. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.